Okay, so as you guys all know, we have been working through a series on hell, and uh, we threw up some scriptures, and we talked about them, right? Uh, we went through those, and then we looked at some critique of that traditional view. Following that, last week, John and the group went through uh, basically universalism. Will everyone be saved? And tonight we are focusing on annihilationism. And so kind of the question that guides that is, is hell eternal? We're examining the duration of hell. Is it something um, yeah, that lasts forever or not? So it's always good, maybe helpful, to start off with a definition or something that we can kind of wrap our minds around. Uh, here it is. So the belief that for those who reject God and are sent to hell, their damnation is not eternal, but instead only for a time ending in the complete destruction of one's body and soul. It's a shift from the traditional idea of torture to destruction. So there are variations on how long, and some an annihilationists would even say there is no hell, and that upon one's death, you're, like if you are someone who doesn't uh, choose God, or if you're not someone who is elect, or you know, we're, we're not going on a topic of salvation, but someone who is with God after death, uh, your soul, your body immediately vanishes. Okay? So there is that group of annihilationists, but I, I'd say even maybe the majority is going to be something that happens after death, um, and there is some form of hell, but how long one is there is, is going to be up for debate. Okay? Another name for it is also the conditional view, and I'll explain why it's called that in a bit. So there are those three views other than the traditional. There's the metaphor of hell. You know, hell is not even there. It's just a metaphor. Um, there is no such thing. We looked at universalism, and then we have annihilationism. And the person we used to most kind of put forth this view is Clark Pinnock, who's going to be a more modern scholar. This view has gone way back. I think Jeremy even pointed out. It goes back to Origen, which is one of the church fathers. I mean, so this is not a new view on hell. But it is, as John has mentioned, alongside universalism, it's going to be a minority view. Okay, so that doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's right. And tonight we're going to look at some of uh, the biblical basis for it. We're going to look at some other arguments. And similar to the previous weeks, we're going to throw up some verses. We're going to examine them together and see what people think, see if it can check out. Now, in this discussion, one thing that's going to be very important for annihilationism is what is eternal punishment, right? We have seen many verses. John has done a great job of printing those out for us. We have looked at probably 50 to 100 different verses. And we've seen some to everlasting life, some to everlasting death, this, this idea of eternal punishment. But someone like Pinnock and many other annihilationists are going to say eternal punishment does not mean never-ending conscious torture. Okay? The traditional view is that idea of you die, you are tortured endlessly with full consciousness. That's eternal punishment. right? Now this view is not going to agree with that. It's going to say eternal punishment is actually irreversible divine judgment. Now the reason that's important, irreversible simply means that, okay, so if someone has chosen not to follow God, that decision upon death is irreversible. So it does not mean, though, that someone is necessarily tortured unendingly. That means there could be this time of punishment, and then their body and soul, at some point, God, in his mercy, actually allows them to vanish. So irreversible judgment. So we're going to have to, that, that's something we're going to have to keep in the back of our minds. Do we agree with that? Do we think that's what eternal punishment could be or could not? Now, 
let's do the textual basis as we have in the past weeks. Because one thing that Pinnock, among many others, he is very much bothered, especially because he would, he would classify as an evangelical scholar. And many evangelicals say, hey, there's just no basis for annihilationism. You know, you guys just make that up. Uh, you don't like the idea of hell, so you, you, you somehow tweak things out and, and you don't really have any scriptural argument for it. And Pinnock takes offense to that because he actually believes, he believes that the Bible stresses death and destruction, irreversible destruction, ruin and perishing, not end, ending torture. Okay, he's going to continually make the idea that things like the images of fire, right? What does fire usually do? When you put wood in fire, what happens? It's consumed, right? I mean, ultimately, if it burns long enough, you get the ashes and then, you know, almost into... And if a fire is hot enough, it, it, can it won't even leave any ashes, right? So that's the idea, is all these imageries actually lead towards destruction, ending, not unending torture. Okay, so that's the case that, that he is going to try to make um, and do that biblically. So, we know in the Old Testament there aren't a lot to, to deal with, but there are a few. So we look at Psalm 37, and there, it's kind of paraphrased here. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's jumping around those verses. But do not fret because of evil men, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like grass, they will soon wither. Evil men will be cut off. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. But the wicked will perish. They will vanish like smoke. So the emphasis there would be on wither, on vanishing, on cutting off, on being no more, right? And, and he would argue that all those imply some sort of ending, not unending torture. Yeah. Um, what's the indication for that verse in Psalms that's talking about like after death as opposed to evil men on earth? And that's a great, I mean, one of the pushbacks on it means maybe uh, David is, is more so thinking about, you know, why, why do wicked people hear do well, and why do, why do righteous people suffer? And maybe it's just the idea of, you know, everyone dies. You know? So it may not be a verse at all that has anything to do with eternity at all. But at least you can see, I mean, the point is made at least as far as vanishing like smoke and, and this, this ending theme. So I think what Pinnock would maybe say to you is that may be true, that it may be about this life, but the idea is, is an ending thing, not unending torture. Because Universalism and annihilationism is, is a critique against the traditional view, right? So he would say things like this. Maybe it's not necessarily about eternality, but we see ending. We see those metaphors and those ideas. Like yeah, I, I mean, I think he's going to be, tr like we said, the Old Testament is kind of sparse. So he's building a case for, um, for destruction or ending, okay? Second one, Malachi 4, verse 1, actually should be verse 1 and 2. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. So again, a picture of end time judgment. We see fire as an image, which we've seen lots and lots and lots the past few weeks. But again, kind of the idea of what does a fire do when it burns down a tree? It's going to burn it down to the ground and it's going to be done. Okay, that's the case that's being made, the picture. But I can kind of see that both of these could be talking about, okay, there will be nothing left of them or their influence on the earth. And I don't see, like you're saying, any indication that that's talking about after they die, they're just going to be no more. It just seems like what they are in a bodily form in front of you will be gone. Yeah, those are the clear pushbacks is this could have nothing to say about what happens after this death. 
And that's a question we have to keep coming back to. I, and we're going to move on to New Testament. This is it for Old Testament. I, I think he makes stronger cases. There are greater scriptural proofs kind of in the New Testament. So these are two verses we've actually seen before. So he speaks about Jesus' words. Um, one of the thoughts here is that, again, Jesus teaches in the New Testament lots about hell. And we've seen that. His teachings, his quote is kind of, his teachings are bold in its warnings, but modest when it comes to its precise description. Okay, so bold in the warnings, but it's not going to be so precise. Like, he thinks that the traditional view pushes or, or maybe takes these verses a little bit too literally. Okay, so that's what he's kind of pushing against. So the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's Matthew 3, verses 10 and 12. Okay, so we see unquenchable fire. We've got to come back to it. Do we think fire burns up? Does it consume? Or, or can you have an unending torture? Okay, because this is the picture he's trying to create. Matthew 13, 39 to 41. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, so another, and we've seen, I, I'm, we are not going to show all the verses that we've been going over for the past weeks, okay? Just because we've done so many of them already. Yeah, Ray. So just to be clear, from, from now it seems like pretty much the basis of his entire argument scripturally is this idea that fire eventually burns to nothing. Is that kind of... Fire consumes. That's what it does. I mean, he's just trying to say, let's think about this image. Because we do see, I mean, fire is all over the place. I mean, that's why John, you know, the, the first or second week, he had the heatometer, right? <laughs> How many times do we see something, you know, ding on every time there, there's a fire image? But he's trying to say, if fire is used so much, let's think about fire, and let's think about what it does. And maybe Jesus uses that image because the purpose is that it actually consumes something, not that you, you know, eternally burn. You know, I mean, that doesn't seem to happen here, at least. Yeah. Oh, two things. The burning bush, which I think the bush didn't consume, like it just burned. And then unquenchable, like it's really interesting to me that he would use a verse with the adjective unquenchable fire. Like what does that mean if not an allusion to, or if it's not alluding to a duration, then what does it mean that the fire is just never satisfied, keep throwing new things in it? Like I don't... He actually addresses that, and so we'll come back to it just because well, we're going to go through a few, and then we'll come back to this one because, yeah, some people, yeah, he does address why he believes that. He's going to, we're, we're going to go, as we look at a few more passages at the end, we're going to come up to an idea that might be a certain perspective or bias that we have um, that makes us hesitant to take on an annihilationist perspective. So we'll keep moving, and we'll get to that because it might come back into that discussion. Now, what we haven't done much of is think about what Paul has talked about. Now, we aren't going to go through everything because, again, I mean, we could have had a list like John has created where Paul has a lot to say about death and, um, you know, what happens. But, again, he, Pinnock argues that Paul uses the metaphors of death and destruction. Okay? So 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. 
Now again, we're going to see that everlasting destruction. Remember what we identified, the eternal punishment. His idea of everlasting destruction would not necessarily mean, now this is where you have to evaluate whether you agree with him or not, but everlasting destruction as something that is irreversible, that, that is done with. Okay? So it's not that you unending, have unending torment, but it's that this is final. This is a final destruction, and it ends in death. Galatians 6.8, the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. 1 Corinthians 3.17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Philippians 1.28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. So we see that, I know it seems redundant, I'm saying destroy, 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 but that's his point, is there is the word of destruction, and then we need to think about what that might look like. Is there any extra in Greek indication that destruction is final within the very definition of that word? Because I see a clear, like, there's definitely a difference between how Jesus talked about things and how Paul is talking about things. So I'm curious about that, and I'm curious about the finality of destruction versus when Jesus uses the word eternal fire, eternal flames, unquenchable fire, like what the difference would be between like, the ideology of those words. So I, I have to say I can't specifically answer that. And even when you learn the language, one of the problems is these words are going to change time over meaning. I mean, there are all these things that you have to do to try to figure out <laughs> how did he mean destruction then and how did they receive that and, and some of these dances where it's difficult. I think what Pinnock tries to push us to, kind of like Jeremy said, is so much of what happens after this life might be conjectural because there is no way of learning anything beyond this life other than special revelation, right? But what the picture the, that the Bible represents, according to Pinnock and many annihilationists, is again, it's not precise on description. It's going to paint a general picture, but it's not going to be so, so precise that you can may, maybe figure out exactly what happens. Monique? It's kind of just the same question, because besides the first one, the Second Thessalonians verse, like the verse, especially like Galatians, to me sort of applies more to like right now, and that's sort of weakening, I guess, the argument for me. Like last week we talked about some verses where Christ was preaching to people who were already dead, like that to me is like strong because it's like, oh, we have this verse that specifically says after death, who was God talking to? Like those things sort of carry a little more weight. And here I just feel like he's showing a trend like, oh, because this verse talks in some way about destruction, that, that somehow equals, oh, it carries on after death. And since I'm only seeing like a verse at a time, I'm not sure if the whole context there was about afterlife. Because I mean, sin does destroy your body. And if you destroy your temple, Maybe God will be done with it and be like, you reap what you sow. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Or, you know. So that's kind of what I'm having trouble with, I guess. Yep. I um, just want to comment on that. Like, for the Galatians verse, if he is talking about like this life, then I think we'd also have to take the, the eternal life that he's talking about, that he contrasts the destruction with to be this life. Or if he is talking about the afterlife and the eternal life and the destruction, then I mean, I, I think you have to be consistent with that verse. Like, because you're saying, so if, if that's the trend for Earth, then that automatically makes it the same well, likelihood for... I think in that verse he says, the one who sows pleases his information will read destruction, and the one who sows pleases will believe eternal life. So I think on that verse, at least specifically, if he's talking about here, then he's talking about here for, eternal, for the eternal life, somehow... The destruction also applies destruction. to the... 
Yeah, or if the eternal life eternal. is actually after death, then the destruction is also after death. But, I mean, we can surely see Pinnock's point that, yeah, destruction is not precise. We don't know what that is exactly. So one line of thought is, well, we have these other verses and other things that are giving us more details. So maybe there is unending eternal torture because this is only a broad picture and those are going to be more specific. Or, you know, I mean, he wouldn't say that, but, but you could fill that in either way. You know, I mean, destruction is not spelled out. That's definitely true. Philippians 3.19, their destiny is destruction. Again, that's as broad as it gets. Romans 1.32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. Again, death is the key word. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So those are some of the pictures. Death and destruction, though, are key words for annihilation. Okay? Oh, yeah, and we've got a few others. Sorry about that. Outside of Paul. 2 Peter 3, verse 7, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. Hebrews 10, 39, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Then you've got Revelation 20, 14, 15, Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's also, that last verse is one that, people are going to use against annihilation, and we'll come back to it. <laughs> um, because many would argue, wait a minute, that's, that's even a weak verse for his argument. But he wants to push death and destruction. So does anyone buy that? I mean, do you, do you buy that in any way? Is it, is it weak? Does he have any case he's making? Yeah, Cormac. Um, I do happen to buy it, and I'd also point out like one of the verses that we didn't talk about is one of the most like, popular verses for evangelicals, which is um, like John 3.16, where he says, um, Whoever believes in him will not perish, implying that those who don't will perish, but will have eternal life. Also, also again, contrasting the eternal life with the perishing. Mm -hmm. So those who believe in him are the ones who have eternal life. If you think of eternity, eternal life as a timeline, if you think of that word as a timeline, then that would imply that those who don't believe in him don't live eternally. And I don't even think that eternal life necessarily means timeline. That's, that's not the way you should think of it anyway. But. Any other reflections? Um, I'd just like to hear a little bit about what this means for faith. Like, what does it mean for our faith if we think that hell is eternal versus if people are just kind of gone? What does that mean to you? What does that mean to us? Yeah, I mean, I would say it does, it, it does have relevance in the sense, I mean, one, John has mentioned these alternative views are the ones that have maybe historically been more minority. Um, they're certainly trying to make sense of who God is, and, and what is it like? Because we'll, And we'll get to some of these. I mean, we call it the moral argument, right? If, if God is loving and good and merciful, as, especially as emphasizing Christ, um, as we see that again and again, how is it that God is endlessly torturing people? And how do we make sense of God's goodness if that is the case? Um, and so something like this. Now, Pinnock is someone who's evangelical. says, yeah, as much as I may not even like the idea of hell, hell is clearly here in the Bible, so we've got to do something with it. Um, and secondly, though, if God is endlessly torturing, this doesn't seem right. So annihilation may make the space for God to still bring justice upon evildoers for those who do not choose God. Okay? It may still make the space for that. And it also says, yeah, but God is merciful and at some point allows them just to perish. You know, as opposed to unending torture. Yeah. 
So what would that mean for Satan and his angels who would presumably inhabit the lake of fire? Would they just hang out? <laughs> right. He doesn't speak to whether Satan and, and demons are endlessly tortured. So I would say there might be some space, first of all. There might be some who would say, okay, Satan and, and his angels are going to endlessly, and God is merciful to people. Some will even say, yeah, but actually the final victory needs to have no more evil, no more suffering, no more pain, no more anything. So even if there is a time of, of great suffering and uh, eternal punishment in fire, whatever it looks like. Uh, at some point it's ended because for Christ to have final victory, ever, that stuff just has to be no longer existing. Suffering, pain, evil, destruction, it's got to be gone. Yeah, Monique? I think it's kind of interesting. Um, there was a point that Jeremy had made, I don't know if it was like last week or the week before, about um, how he found it sort of difficult or just made the point that you would pay eternally for a decision you made on earth that's so finite, like afterlife, but this doesn't really deal with that because you're still sort of paying for it finally for a finite life because he's still saying, right, that if you don't like choose God, you don't choose Christ or whatever, that it's final. Like when you die, like whatever choice you made on earth is binding. So like it doesn't really address that. It's just addressing more like God's supposed mercy because it's not forever torture. Well, yeah, I mean, he's still, I mean, I think he would say biblically speaking, there, especially, you know, in the Psalms and Proverbs and in the New Testament for that matter, there seems to be those who choose God go a certain path and those who don't go a certain different path. He doesn't believe the biblical witness can throw all that out, you know. Instead, it's, it is still an irreversible decision. Um, you are held accountable, you know, judgment is, is throughout the scriptures. And it is a binding one. So universalism may make space for, for salvation occurring after this life's death. From what I've seen, annihilation does not. It's, if you've chosen that way, the way God's mercy is shown is that instead of never-ending torture, at some point, and you know, totally conjectural, but at some point, you know, your body, soul, you vanish into nothingness. It's perishing, it's destruction, it's death. That's, that's the biblical witness in their eyes. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I have like, I guess, two major issues. Like, not that I'm particularly attached to any idea, because I guess in a way similar to Jeremy, I'm not really attached to any particular idea about the afterlife. But um, my main problems with this argument so far are the idea of <clears throat> something being irreversible. Like, the word binding to me is a little bit easier to understand, because in my mind, God can still break a bond. But the idea of something being irreversible, for you to vanish beyond a point that God could never bring you back from, that word seems to constrict God in a certain way that makes me a little bit hesitant to, to say something that's, that that nothingness that you can be cast out into is something greater than God, that it's irreversible, that you can be cast into this thing that's so permanent that it seems to suggest almost to me that even God can bring you back from that. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Um, but we tend to think of heaven being a place where we're not going to sin and fall out of it, right? I mean, maybe we're wrong in our assumption here, or wrong in the way we understand the scripture, but my understanding, at least, and, and rather traditional seems to be if you place your faith in Christ and, and you are gathered up into Christ and, and you spend eternity with Christ, that's not going to change. You know, in the same way that, that this annihilation is binding, so is, so is being with God in heaven everlasting. I don't know, like, the way, I, the way I've always understood it is, like, 
you will never be like you'll never sin against God in heaven and you'll never be separated from him because that's his choice and that's his grace but if you're annihilated that seems to be the work of like something else pulling you into this void that no their understanding would not be that it's there's not a cosmic evil that annihilates you you know so it's it we still have the judgment throne we still have people coming before God those who are in Christ are, are gathered up and those are either sent to hell for a certain period and then annihilated. Um, it is not a cosmic dualism. And that's important because a lot of the ancient Near Eastern religions had that idea of, you know, this is good and this is bad and they're at war from, at each other. That's not, there's not an evil here. God is sovereign. Even with this understanding, God is certainly sovereign here. You know, so it may rub you wrong or, or, or have difficulty with that, but... Um, I would say I don't, I don't see any problem with God's sovereignty, at least in that sense. I kind of am on your bandwagon. Like, it's almost on Rachel's bandwagon that it's almost restricting what God can do. Because if it doesn't matter to him, like, it almost makes more sense to me that there's either punishment because your life mattered, you were alive, so there's forever punishment, or he has this extended grace that just saves everyone or maybe gives you another chance at salvation after death. Because if it didn't matter to him anyways... And he's like, okay, you're just not going to exist. Why couldn't God justify you? Or like, I mean, if you're just not going to exist anyway, like why wouldn't he just extend his grace or, I don't know, like rectify a situation or it just doesn't make sense to just make you not exist. Why is that sitting, why are you more okay with like eternal punishment? Like how is this not punishment, I guess is what I'm asking. It just makes more sense to me, I think. Like if, because we're alive, we matter. Like our souls matter to God. He knows each one of us. And so, I don't know. To me, if he reveals himself and makes it clear and it's like this choice that you make everlasting, it would make more sense to me that either you make your choice and you go here and people go to heaven or they go to hell and like that's the way it is, traditional view, or that God would somehow just like make it all right. You know, like just make it right. Just justify you or rectify a situation like I don't understand why he would just because at that point it's like your life never mattered anyways it was like oh you didn't choose me okay now you don't exist like to me I just I don't understand that it doesn't make sense to me Jeremy the next question would be though if why couldn't God find a way like if there's no restriction on God then God can presumably find a way to save all people whatever the word saved means means, right? It's like, philosophically, I think it still, or theologically, it still leads us down the same, like, question about that, that isn't necessarily, like, I don't know if it's answerable, you know, because, I mean, I think that's a good question to ask. What's the difference between God annihilating something and that being okay, or, um, you know, that's somehow being a restriction versus God doing eternal punishment, and then, of course, the next question is, well, why couldn't God, if we're not putting restrictions in any scenario, why couldn't God just save everybody? You know? Like, wouldn't it be an even greater act of mercy to redeem Satan, in, in essence? You know? I mean, so what I like about these passages is they talk about death and destruction as, like, the inevitable <coughs> outcome, really, of all of our lives. And, like, that makes sense to me. Because you can go down these... Right, and you you're bringing up stuff from way back when. If you guys can remember back to the problem of suffering and evil, 
we talked a lot about, you know, what are God's restrictions and, you know, there's all kind of circles we can't go back into. But at least from the annihilation perspective, God chooses, for whatever reason, to allow us to have freedom, to choose or to not choose. And in that, God chooses not to force. If you are somebody who says, no, I'm not going to walk, the, I'm going to be wicked, you know, I'm going against God, God allows for that. And instead of making you choose him, he allows that, and then we go down the path of hell and annihilation. So, I mean, freedom is a big part of annihilation. Like, that, that is an important um, part of their argument why they would say, yeah, God chooses not to force those people otherwise. And so because of that, wickedness is, is death. That's, that's the destruction and perish and all these metaphors and words we're seeing. Yeah, John. I don't think that we can focus too much on what God can and can't do. Like We seem to be focused on that. I, I think that if we can, and it's a big if, we're trying to discern what God will do, like what he wants to do. And so all these views attempt to get there in some way. The, the main point is really trying to discern, based on our view of who God is, what will he do, based on the promises he seems, or the things that he reveals about himself, what will he do, not what can he do, because I think all of them are possible. Yeah, we'll keep going, I mean, because some of the strongest arguments are moral arguments, justice arguments, and metaphysical, like, those are how some people put it, is, you know, how do we make, we already talked about, how do we make sense of God's goodness, uh, does this help us, and I think it does, I mean, there is some strength, and Pinnock at least has some humility, because I don't think he throws out the impossibility of the traditional view. I mean, he's very strongly against it. But there are thoughts, many people would say, that sounds like a sadistic God. And it even contradicts, possibly, uh, in the Old Testament, you have eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We're going to go through that. And then you have Jesus even saying, you've heard that it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say to you, you know, resist, or go ahead, you know, turn your right cheek if, if you are hit. Uh, things like that. And so you have this revealed will of God, and yet you have God endlessly torturing people who have not chosen him. And how do you make sense of that? So annihilation, I would say it makes sense of at least God giving freedom, allowing for people who don't love him, who do not want to choose him, who do not go his path, to be destroyed, to have perish. You know, like that seems to be, the Bible is very clear, there seem to be some who, who have eternal life and others who don't. Um, and yet for those who don't, at least there's some end to that. There's, there's some grace or mercy in not experiencing unending torture. Okay. Um, the only thing that the thing that strikes me most about that is like, if God's going to annihilate them, what are they suffering for? What's the point of their suffering? If they're paying for their sins, and that's the justice of it, then why aren't the people who are going to heaven suffering for a time for their sins? And eventually they'll go to heaven and the other people... So you're a Catholic now. Annihilate yeah, I, I honestly, like, purgatory has always made more sense to me especially than the idea of annihilationism. If that's the idea, is that they'll suffer for a time and then be annihilated, then everybody should suffer for a time and eventually go to heaven or eventually be annihilated. But what's like Yeah, and we've seen this throughout the series. Things play off of other... I mean, there are about three or four different theological points that some we have talked about, some we haven't. At least let me just address the idea of hell to begin with or, or something. I don't think anyone here believes that justice is done on this earth fully or even close to being fully. And John can tell you why that's not the case. <laughs> you know, but I mean, honestly, I mean, we've done the Justice series, and 
I, I think certainly there's a place for eternal judgment. Now, whether that's unending torture or whether that's an annihilation, whether that's something, we know all kinds of evil, rotten, wicked people who make it through this life. They live long, they make lots of money, they do well. Justice is not served to them. We, we know this. It's true. an idea of justice, though. Like, it I is. understand that's very appealing, like, yes, they should have to suffer at some point. But like, No, I don't think it has to be a sadistic like that sense. I mean, yeah, John? Go back to Romans 6.23. I think that's actually the, the, the <coughs> raised question is, the wages of sin is death, so all deserve this destruction. Everyone is supposed to have it, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's actually the point, is that we're all there. But, but God, he wants, it's his desire, that some are saved if you are in Christ. So I don't think that it's really the purgatorial view or anything like that. He's just saying that all of you deserve this, whether it's destruction, right, or whether it's eternal torment. But you all deserve that. And let's just say it is destruction. You all deserve destruction. But... Part of the gift of God is his son, so that we can escape that if we find him in his life. And there's all sorts of other reasons for Christ that we've talked about, but you can't ignore that God chose that to be one of them. I think I finally put my finger on what I wasn't buying about this or what didn't make sense to me. And you could tell me if I'm wrong, maybe there's a view of an annihilationism where you just die and that's it completely, like right when you die. Because to me, I guess what doesn't make sense is that it's still sadistic. Like, even though it doesn't last forever, it's still God saying, you didn't choose me, you were a sinner, so you're going to burn, and you're still going to be tortured, and it's still this or whatever, but it's just for a time. Like, to me, it's still sadistic, like, why the punishment has to be this torturous thing, but it makes him, quote-unquote, better or more good just because it doesn't last for eternity. So really, it is just the duration. This isn't, it seems that this view isn't really dealing with how could a loving God do something that seems so quote-unquote sadistic or whatever was thrown out the words we've used? It doesn't really deal with that. All it's saying is that he's not going to let it last forever. So he kind of wants to torture you and hurt you, but just not forever. I wouldn't phrase it that way because you're correct in saying there is punishment. I mean, I think the Bible is clear on throughout both Testament. There is punishment for those who do not choose God. What that is is what we're trying to figure out. Um, how long it lasts, but yeah, there there are clear. I mean, there's a reason why Jesus says there's a narrow road, it's, you know, and and there's a reason why there are some who choose it and some who don't. Yeah, Cormac, and we're going to move on after this comment. Really quick, I just want to say like it doesn't even necessarily say that you are punished like for for like oh you know it could just be like immediate death, um, like not like a conscious punishment. This it doesn't like say that has to be. It just says like that there is a destruction and that's what Jesus and Paul were talking about was that just final judgment and just like finality to it. So the, the point of annihilationism is the finality, not necessarily any length or anything after that, just finality. Right, and I mentioned that up front, there's differences on whether it's an immediate or whether it's, you know, whether there's a period of Hades and then judgment and then immediate annihilation. I mean, th that's where there are some variation. Okay, now, one of the things that I think is an important bias that he actually picks up, and I think this has some strength, is Monique brought up this perspective, and you could hear by what she said, some of the reading in between the lines, is that an assumption that our souls are, are, are made for eternity, right? That somehow we believe that humans are inherently unending. Pinnock argues that that is not the biblical view. 
This is why it's called conditionalism. So he's saying instead that the biblical view that only God alone is immortal. 1 Timothy 6, 15b through 16. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives an unapproachable life. God alone is inherently, what we would say inherently, immortal. And instead, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54 and, and other passages as well, but let's read that. So I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in a victory. Now, it's kind of difficult. There's, Paul does his classic. There's so many juxtapositions. You're kind of lost, imperishable, perishable. But the idea is that God has created humans with the capacity for eternal life and only conditionally gives it to some. So, as opposed to thinking every, you know, once, once God has created us in the womb and once we begin our life, our soul and body will never end, right? It's got to go somewhere. It's either got to go to heaven or got to go to hell. There, there's no in between. The idea of conditionalism is God gives eternal life to those who choose him. To those who don't, as other passages that we've just looked at, the end is death. It's perish. It's destruction. It's kind of, I mean, Plato is one of the main thinkers of the immortality of the soul. And it's something, as I was even reading this and just thinking about it, going, yeah, I guess I've always been taught, or I've always thought, as long as I can remember, that I am an immortal being inside of me, somehow. You know, and, and uh, you know, we get a new heaven, or a new body, and, and new creation. I understand that idea, but my soul endures forever. That's just the way humans are. That's something we have to think about, because that's very important for that view because what it does real simply is we tend to think of okay if we have an immortality of soul right if a human soul and being is inherently immortal then yeah it does he believes it ex it skews the exegesis you have to have heaven you have to have hell and hell has to be eternally right because if that immortality of the soul is eternal then you have to continue to to endure torture because once you're created you're alive that's that yeah to me, this, the idea that the soul can end, makes it even more tragic, the idea of people being lost than even the idea of hell. Because with hell, it almost seems like God's still involved. But if you just let your life be snuffed out like a candle, and you don't care, you say, it's better if God isn't there, it's better if life just ends, then you go through your entire existence on life and eternally without the presence of God. And I feel like that makes more sense to me the idea of God being one who loves us, like how tragic that would be to his heart to have someone go out into the void, not choosing him for eternity. I gotta push back against you. You're a nurse and, and many when people are suffering and they're in their last years, we do say things. And may, maybe it's totally a human perspective. I mean, so I'm not gonna try to use this as the the answer to your question. But many of us say, Hey, at least they're no longer suffering. You know? They've been going through about five years of just awful pain, you know, they're out of their misery, they're, they're, they're gone, you know. Um, you might be speaking of hell in an idealized way to say, well, it'd be better to be eternally, I mean, think of, think of, you know, that idea of eternally suffering with no end, 
you know, and, and to say, well, it's, it's less merciful to, to stop that, even, even though I agree with you, it is certainly tragic. We, we started from the place that God created us to know him and have fellowship with him. And anything outside of it, anyone who doesn't get to experience that, that is tragic, absolutely. And, the Bible, and that's, that's what the rescue and the save and redemption and reconcile and all of these words and all these truths that are so important to us. Because, yeah, the situation is tragic apart from them. So I would not say that eternal torture is something to be messed around with. That's obviously horrible imagery. But I also understand that if we really believe that we were created to be in a relationship with God, that the whole reason why we were created was to be in community with Him, then our whole purpose is ripped from us if you choose if you don't choose him forever and to me that is really tragic and that's like how I deal with people I have a lot of atheists in my family who don't believe in God at all and for me I'm not motivated by the idea that they're gonna burn in hell forever I'm motivated by the idea that they're living a completely purposeless life away from their whole purpose which I believe is to be in community with God human and human and God like to have that completely null and void at the end of life and forever is the ultimate tragedy. Yeah, and I agree. Yeah, Monique? I actually think this is his strongest point. And I never even thought about this before. And I'll give it some thought now. And I never even realized I had that bias, but I definitely have the bias. Like, I just always assume that my soul is, is eternal. Like, that God made us, and once you exist, you exist. And, like, our body dies, but our soul somehow is eternal and I never gave thought to the fact that our soul might not be eternal and that God has to actually grant that at a later time as opposed to granting that to us at birth. It's something to think about. I mean, it, what he's trying to at least push against is where do we get the concept of unending eternal torture? And then, so I mean, we need to get to, yeah, I mean, let's get his conclusion then we'll throw a few verses where people kind of go against annihilation and, and what he has to say to them. So, the Bible teaches conditionalism. God created humans mortal with a capacity for life everlasting, but is not their inherent possession. Immortality is a gift God offers us in the gospel, not an inalienable possession. The soul is not an immortal substance that has to be placed somewhere if it rejects God. If a person does reject God finally, there is nothing in biblical anthropology to contradict what Jesus plainly taught. God will destroy the wicked body and soul in hell. Once this is seen, a person is free to read the Bible on hell naturally and straightforwardly. Okay? Yeah. We were struggling with what God could and couldn't do, and I think it's funny that we almost have this rule, like once God creates a soul, he can't uncreate it. <laughs> right? And so clearly he can do whatever he wants. And yeah. I think that I actually agree, This is I agree with Monique that this is Pennock's greatest point in this view, because we do, not only do we have the bias, but we seem to want to tie God's hands in this area and kind of make this, hey, once you create a soul, that's it. your hands are tied, God. You can't do anything about it except decide its ultimate destiny. I don't think there's anything that could restrict God in that way. Yeah. AJ? I'm with everybody else as far as like this being kind of a different idea that I hadn't previously thought of. But yeah, I mean, that's an interesting idea because it does challenge the fact that we like to point being, whoa, well, their soul's not saved, and blah, blah, blah. Well, hey, I don't even know if mine is going to be everlasting. So I think that's really interesting. And yeah, I mean, God can give and take away just as easily. So that's a really interesting point. And, yeah. Yeah, so I think at least how that shapes our understanding of, of hell and whether it's a conscious, unending torment. 
Um, moral argument. So questions to consider. So the Bible shows God is revealed most powerfully through Jesus Christ to be boundlessly merciful. So here's some of the questions he asks. He is forgiving, loving. What would the goodness of God mean if God torments people everlastingly? Suppose one might be afraid of him, but could we love and respect him? Would we want to strive to be like him in, in this mercilessness? Essentially, how do we make sense of God's mercy if God tortures people endlessly in hell? This is kind of the moral force. And he admits his bias later. And he is morally and theologically opposed to the idea of God torturing endlessly. I mean, he does come out and finally say it. But he thinks there's a biblical case, that it's not just made up, but he certainly has that idea doesn't sound right to him. How do we understand the goodness of God? And do we only view things from a human conception? Can hell, even in the traditional view, can it exist with God still being merciful and holy and good? Um, one thing I think we do need to think of, if we're going to make sense of hell, and we're going to make sense of God's goodness, I think one of the questions that I have thought about is what does it look like for people who are wicked and unsaved to be in heaven and how, how would that thwart everything? You know, at least that's one thought I've had to say, okay, why would God send people to, to a separate place and, and how does God's will be done? Now, I mean, Jeremy's going to take the perspective that God could purify them and it might be even a greater act of mercy to redeem those people and then allow them to be... So we have to put that on... I mean, I, I think there's, there's something to be said for that. I mean, you can't just throw it out. But if that's not the case, if this life is what you are given to to make this decision, to me at least there is a sense where, yeah, imagine people who are who hate and oppose God in heaven. It doesn't seem to work. We have a, we have a problem here because the whole the whole picture is messed up. I don't think we can just simply say, yeah, hell can't exist because God can't be merciful and 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 there be a hell. I think there actually is a place for ultimate judgment. As I said to Ray also, justice is not done on this earth. It's just not. I mean, we know that. Right, and so all ideas of partial hell aside, because that I can't deal with. Um, this to me seems like an extension of free will. God's justice is that he will not force you to love him at the end of time. Your choice is eternally being gone. Like You will cease to exist without him, and so... That's, it's, like, it's like your choice. There's not this idea of punishment. It's almost like God is like reaching out for you to the end of your life, but if you still refuse him and deny him and push against him your whole life and then you die, then not that he couldn't redeem you past that point because I still think that he could, but that, he, that his justice is that he will not force you to love him. So to me, that's the strongest. That's why this makes more sense. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And then in that, the way you see God is merciful is since you have, you know, again, you have chosen and God for whatever reason decides not to force, then says, all right, I will even give you mercy in not making this unending. You have chosen this for yourself. You have gone down this road. And at least at some point, I'll cut this off. Um, justice argument. Hell seems to disrupt our sense of justice, even justice that is established in scriptures. As I kind of mentioned, Exodus 21, 23 through 25, the idea of just punishment for just crime. Okay. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Okay, we know that not to be so literal. If you, you know, break someone's arm, they break your arm. It's not. I mean, but this is this is. I mean, this is one of the bases of, you know, our modern justice system. Even okay. So just this idea of just punishment for just crime. Um, and then the New Testament even higher standard. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So the argument from Pinnock's view and annihilation is that if God has given us this, has given these commandments, 
How do we see God torturing people in hell? It, hell, would amount to inflicting infinite suffering upon those who have committed finite sins and goes beyond an eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It would create a serious disproportion between sins committed in time and the resulting suffering experienced forever. This is what Jeremy brought up last week. Same kind of concept. Yeah. He's correct in identifying the eye for eye language as a measure of proportionality. It's not just justice, it's proportionality. Um, and that is the basis of our proportionate response. That's why he uses the word here, disproportion. I, I, and I don't know that I necessarily agree with this, but I would say that the traditional view responds by saying the difference is if you harm me and I'm supposed to proportionally respond, that's because I am wrong in other ways and you are wrong and we're both evil or sinful. We're both not perfect. The difference in the proportionality with God is it can't be done. He's perfect. He does, there, there shouldn't be anything. I understand the eternality, though. So that's why I don't know that I totally buy the argument. I understand that infinite punishment for a finite sin sounds disproportionate. And I'm not even bringing that up. I'm just saying that we don't consider that sometimes when we're talking about proportionality among humans, we're all wrong. We all deserve death. We're all sinful. The traditionals would just say it's a little different with God because he's holy and pure and has done no wrong. Right. And that's something for sure to be thought. I mean, this might be God's law for people and their interactions with each other. That certainly could be the case, and it may, we might have a false analogy here, right? Um, but at least, but I mean, it, I mean, there's still something to think about here because God does desire for us to have proportionality in crimes and punishment. So, what does it look like for God to command that and not do it? But does His holiness, does His perfection, override that? I mean, those are things to consider. Um, last one is metaphysics. Simply put, does an everlasting heaven demand an ever everlasting damnation. I think it's important again because it's kind of one of those things that we just assume. First um, Corinthians 15, 26 to 28, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God will be all in all. There's that push against the idea, if God is all in all, what does Christ's victory look like if there is suffering, evil, punishing, death, destruction in hell. Can that happen? Revelation 21.5. He was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. So both those, they just point to those and say, what does it look like for a new creation with, with, with the suffering and pain and awfulness existing at the same time? They have a problem conceiving that. So it may not be strong. It may be strong. Um, but they, they just say, hey, how is this a new creation? How is God all in all if, if you have this awful existence of hell and these things happening? Yeah. Um, for Revelations 21.5, would a universalist use that for their argument that he's making everything new? Right. I mean, they would maybe go down the road of, yeah, actually, you know, there is this purging and God will ultimately make them new. Sure. Yeah, I think so. Okay, maybe we'll just and leave it there. So let me go ahead and pray for us. Lord, um, your mysteries are great. And Lord, we continue to ask for humility and your presence and your guidance as we contemplate these things. Um, Lord, I thank you for even Rachel's statement uh, that reminds me of my own family and, and, and many others who don't know you. So Lord, we do pray that you would reveal yourself and that you give us your grace and that you would gather us all up into you. Um, that you would... Uh, just reveal and work powerfully in the lives of 
everyone in this room and, and all those we know and, and the many billions of people that we don't know and that we will never know, uh, God, but that you know, um, and that you love and that you desire to come to know you and, and worship you. And Lord, we pray for your peace that comes through Christ. Uh, pray this in your gracious name. Amen.